once again, and thank you for being here. We're so blessed to see each of you. Just reach out for a moment with a, a gift of peace, our peace in Christ, to express one to another. Thank you. Hey, Jim. See you, man. Bless you. Bless you, too. Amen. Thank you. <coughs> well, our boys and girls now are beginning going to their Pathfinders and Explorers classes. And welcome to each of you that are a part of the Facebook Live time. And we invite you today to open your Bible to the third chapter of the book of Galatians. And um, just a moment, we're going to, as our classes begin. We love this buzz whenever good fellowship is taking place, and uh, again, welcome to each of you. We had a just a joyous weekend yesterday with celebrating what's happening in Christian Farmer Outreach, and uh, Lou, would you have a quick, just a, like a like a quick testimony of anything that was the outcome of yesterday you might want to share? I, I know that so much that uh, took place bringing together supporters for Christian Farmers Outreach was a joy yesterday. Praise the Lord. good it's great to great to be able to share in just just the the overflow of what's happening as people are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those beads in so many so many places so many different venues around the world today I want to invite you to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3 uh, and also find Romans chapter 3 we'll be touching on that in a little bit later but Galatians chapter 3 Today, we want to take another step in our journey of tracing the covenant-keeping nature of our Heavenly Father, bringing about what we can never fully describe in human terms adequately, but impacts our souls with great force and great liveliness 
in every new endeavor and situation we find ourselves in. When we think of what Paul said as I open today with Galatians 2.20 and just before the reading we'll have now, but if you look a few verses up into Galatians 2.20 and you see the Apostle Paul speaking about the individual impact of the cross of Jesus Christ in our lives. To, to even begin to scratch the surface of what this means is, is a task beyond the reach of, of any preacher, of any artist, of any composer, of music, or any other field of endeavor and creativity. Because to honor Jesus in, its, in the fullness of what he's done can only be done by reflecting back in the individual work of grace in the heart what God has done for us. Paul put it like this in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. You see that in your own Bible. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in this life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul ends that second chapter by saying, I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness had come by the works of the flesh, Christ would have died in vain. And then he opens the passage we want to look at as we start the covenant sacrifice. Now, the journey we've walked starts with Mount Sinai. So four weeks ago, we looked at how God manifested, made real for Moses in the giving of the law, not only the trajectory of truth that would come out of the giving of the law, but the magnificent power of his holiness. When we talked about that at Mount Sinai, we talked about the covenant journey because it was at Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 that God, in giving the law to make his righteousness crystal clear in infinitely diverse aspects of life, God gave to Moses and those tasked to lead the people an understanding of the magnificent power of his holiness such that the natural phenomenon recorded in Exodus 19 of the mountain and the smoke and the, uh, the thunder and lightning around the mountain and uh, a, a, a veritable earthquake of the mountain and the voice of God speaking from heaven to Moses and the giving of the law all was wrapped around a covenant purpose. And we saw in Exodus 19.6 that covenant purpose was that you would be a treasured possession to the Lord and you would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now we know that as we trace last week looking at uh, the, covenant, uh, the, the covenant confrontation that we saw that at crucial points along the way, when the prophetic utterances came in to reveal what was happening in this covenant plan time and time and time again, um, the brokenness of human hearts and the fullness of human sinfulness in all of its, all of its downward spiraling manifestations was described by one writer as, as if all of us are, are walking among the debris at the base of Mount Sinai where the people said, we can't come to God. We can't even come near the mountain. They realized the gap that was a complete chasm 
between their individual sinfulness and the manifest holiness of God. And it was in that that God revealed his covenant-keeping nature, not only in the giving of that law, but in the foreshadowings of the coming of Messiah, when in the last 15 chapters of Exodus, he gave them instructions for that elaborate tabernacle, the details of which are tedious for us to read in our English language. They take 15 chapters to fully describe, but all of those aspects of the tabernacle pointed to the fulfilled work of Christ on Calvary's cross. So it's another way of saying that no human brain can comprehend the full magnitude of it, and yet, in spite of that, Galatians 3 opens with these words as we think of the covenant sacrifice. The covenant journey was to start them on that trajectory. The covenant certainty was to anchor them in the fact that God's covenant never fails. The covenant confrontation we saw last week is for each individual to hear what John the Baptist was tasked to proclaim, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight, and demonstrate that by the repentance that was illustrated in that water baptism in the Jordan River. But none of that would achieve the goal of God if it were not for what we want to look at today. And that is that at the heart of the message of the cross is the atoning sacrifice of the eternal God-man. The atoning sacrifice. And that sacrifice is not peripheral to the story. It's not on the outer edges. It is at the very heart and the very essence of what God had intended from the beginning. Now, the words in Galatians 3.1, if you find it in your own Bible, you notice it starts out with that, uh, uh, that um, word of rebuke to the believers in the Galatian region who had begun to slip back under a trusting in works of the law to somehow demonstrate their worthiness to be followers of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is correcting that legalism, and we're not going to really deal with the legalism part of it today, but to go zero right into the heart of why does Paul say in Galatians 3 that you not only are free from the works of the law, not only are you free from the curse of your own flesh, but you can stay free and you can grow free if you know what he says in these 13 verses. Now we're going to just skip into parts of this, but look at Galatians 3.1 where the Apostle Paul speaks to the Galatians in a very blunt confrontational way to say, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Now, the, the confrontation to the believers here was necessary because of false teachers that had crept in, the Judaizer group that had begun to, to infiltrate Christian groups in that Galatian region and, and make them think that because you came from a Gentile background, that somehow now you need to add to faith in Christ either circumcision or works of law or certain rituals or certain ceremonies. And Paul is showing that, that not only is that not necessary, but it is actually a direct obstacle 
to putting your faith in Christ alone. But as he does that, and that whole work, that whole understanding of why we're free is at the heart of Galatians. The the fifth chapter begins, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The reason that liberty, the reason that freedom, the reason that vitality of your soul is something you can count on is because Christ Jesus was portrayed, it says, and this is the emphasis, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That phrase about the covenant sacrifice is especially striking to me today because it wraps up in a brief expression why giving to one another and to the world around us the good news of Christ dying on the cross of Calvary is the most life-giving thing you can ever do. In fact, even when the beads are being shared and you get to that red bead and you're talking about the, the blood of Christ, it is essentially, in a nutshell, what Paul refers to in a sweeping expression here as Jesus Christ being publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, maybe more than, than ever before, I began to reflect upon, upon why is the emphasis here on the public portrayal of the crucifixion and um, a, a parallel verse that you may want to find in your Bible. We won't turn and read it here, but you may want to reference it is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says, 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or depending upon how well I can express these things, but I came to you with one singular emphasis, Christ crucified. And the full impact of what that means is what he's referring to here in Galatians 3.1 as well. In two words, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, he packs in together what we might call the full blossomed power of the God-man becoming one of us, dying on the cross for us, being raised again victorious from the dead, and accomplishing the fulfillment of that covenant. And his emphasis in 1 Corinthians 2 and in Galatians 3 is that it's an open portrayal for all to see. The apostle once referred to this in another message in the book of Acts as God didn't do these things in a corner. He did it openly for all to see. We forget sometimes that one of the reasons for the necessity and the priority in the scripture of New Testament congregations having public worship, the the, the Lord's Day worship that is so dear to our hearts, is partly because God wants this good news shouted from the housetops. This is not something for a special, super spiritual elite group off in a corner blessing themselves. This is the good news of the God who came to save. It's the good news of God's redeeming love in Christ. And the public expression of Christ crucified is a continuing mandate for the church. That's even embedded in the very language, the the use of the language in verse 1 of Galatians 3 and in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 2. He uses a verb expression where he talks about Christ being crucified and it is 
in the, the Greek language, there are two different types of past tense. There's actually three types, but for comparison's sake, there are two primary types of past tense. One is called a simple past tense, that's called the aorist, and the other is a past tense accomplishment that has continuing impact into the present, and that's called the perfect. And the form of the verb in both Galatians 3.1 and in 1 Corinthians 2 is that Christ crucified, the perfect participle means that the crucifixion of Christ is not only a finished work historically in the past, but it has dynamic continuing impact in this very moment. That the, in essence, Galatians 3.1 is saying we're called to openly, publicly, joyously, boldly proclaim Christ crucified and the victory that his crucifixion brings to us. And that's why uh, in the prior three weeks, I've asked you to think with me about a, uh, a verse that's kind of a, a kind of a key verse in what we're talking about. And that is one I'll ask you to say aloud with me from the screen again. As we think about what the covenant journey, the covenant purpose of God, is intended to do. Let's read aloud together this brief phrase from Titus 2.11 to think about that again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared. The emphasis is, again, on God making this available. We rejoiced in that yesterday at the luncheon for CFO. It's about people hearing about Jesus. And not only is it something we're called to give, but it's in the very nature of the way God sent his son to the cross that the new covenant revolves around this truth of the only one who could ever accomplish our redemption, doing so fully and joyously and sacrificially, and at the heart of that, these three key verses I'd like you to think about are the heartbeat of three keys to the atoning death of Jesus I'd like to give you today. Now, I want to give you the biblical background first, and then we'll kind of capsulize this in a moment. First, in Titus 2, as we see, grace of God has appeared to bring saving power to all human beings, to bring his gift of salvation to all people. Why? Verse 14 of that same passage says that Christ may redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a redeemed people, a people uniquely belonging to God. So we connect now. What did God say at Sinai, Exodus 19.6? He said, I brought you to myself as on eagle's wings that I might, you might be a peculiar treasure unto me and that you might be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. They failed again and again and again and again in the downward spiral of, 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 of the failure of Israel's national identity is the, is the theme that runs through the gamut of law, kings, chronicles, prophets, poets, and all of those whom God sent as oracles in those eras. And then we saw last week that John the Baptist came as that final prophet in the long line of the prophets, that though he appears on the pages of our New Testament, we can rightly say that John the Baptist is the last of that line of old covenant promise, prophets 
And Christ referred to him that way in Matthew 11 when he said, among those born of women, there are none greater than John. Not because of some inherent greatness in him, but because of the greatness of the assigned covenant purpose God gave John to announce the immediate arrival of the promised one. And Jesus used that greatness of John the Baptist, that significance of his role in the covenant plan to highlight something even greater. He said, though there are none born among women greater than John, in terms of his privilege and his standing and his eternal calling and purpose, and yet the least who is now born of God through the gift of salvation is greater than he in an elevated place of of, of privilege. It was a, a kind of a, you might say it was a bit of a um, an oblique way early for Jesus to describe what Paul has said in Galatians, that now we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Could you say, yet not I, but Christ lives in me? The three words again, yet not I, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This is the, the dynamic truth that was coming out of the realization of why we needed to be redeemed from all iniquity. The word iniquity in a more modern contemporary language would be the word lawlessness. In Titus 2.14, the emphasis is the redeeming blood of Christ came to provide what is manifestly true about every human being that only Jesus could deliver us from the peril in which our sin nature, our lawlessness, our incapacity to create righteousness plunges us. One writer described the necessity of the death of Christ as referred to there in Titus 2.14 in this way, that it was sin which made death necessary. It was sin which made death the, ne- the conquering of death, the necessary demonstration of God's love in Christ. This was so because sin, this is intriguing to think about. Why did we need this redemption from our lawlessness? It is because sin itself had involved each of us in death. And there was no possibility of Christ dealing with sin effectively except by taking our responsibility in it on himself, that is, no way for us to be delivered except Christ dying for us. Now, when he dies for us, it is as if death is being defeated because we had involved ourselves in death through our sin. Christ took over our involvement and freed us from it. No human being ever thought of, has it as has ever been thought of, as having lived before himself performing his mission. But this is what the Son of God is reported as doing. He lived before his entrance into humanity. Eternally God, in the incarnation, the virgin conception in the womb of Mary, becomes the eternal God, man. When Jesus of Nazareth 
came to fulfill that mission. It was the very fact that the Lord Jesus Christ had lived before he came into the world that made it so that he could not be born in the ordinary way, and he was not. In the virgin birth, God revealed this plan of salvation, meaning God will dwell with us. So when Jesus went to the cross, and I'd like you to, to, note, to note something in your Bible, if you would just open your Bible to Mark and Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, and think about it in this light, that Jesus is emphasizing in his promise of the covenant that his entire mission was to be a bloody sacrifice. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't like to hear that kind of language from a pulpit. We're, you know, we're somewhat uh, refined, and we, 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 uh, we recoil from the notion of, of the, the slaughtering of innocent animals. And yet, those prophetic foreshadowings throughout the Old Testament were to point us to the ultimate slaughtering of the most innocent of all that could be imagined, and that is the God-man in his sinlessness taking our place to be the bloody sacrificial victim for the sin of the world. Why Titus 2.14? To redeem us from all iniquity that we might belong to him, that that covenant purpose that God had planned and promised at Sinai could be fulfilled in a new covenant, a new covenant not based on human effort or human striving or human aspiration, but based on the covenant-keeping nature of God. Look at Mark 10, 45 to just get that quick summary of how Jesus described it to his own disciples in one verse, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man... Emphasizing his missionary mandate there, son of man is a technical term from the prophet Daniel referring to the coming Messiah, the promised one, and it joins together, it fuses together both the reality of his humanity but also of his messianic mission eternally planned by the Father. For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Flip on over there to Romans 3.23, just to look at that, Romans 3.23 and 24, to think about that in light of this second part, that he was, we are justified freely through his blood, Romans 3.23 and 24. Of course, that 23rd verse is among the best known among Christians all over the world. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the 24th verse tells us that the intention of God in the new covenant was through the sacrifice of his own son to accomplish the full gift of this redemption. Look at Romans 3.24, if you have it in your Bible. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by faith in his blood. That's just a $29 word that means the bloody sacrifice. It literally means the bloody sacrifice, the, the, the atoning sacrifice. And then if you have kept Galatians 3 open and then you can go back and see the third part of this is that we're released from the curse of the law in Galatians 3.13. So the imagery we have here moves from, first of all, God's promised lamb. 
The one that John spoke of in John 1.29 when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God's eternal promise that he would send the atoning sacrifice. Then we see in Titus that it was for the purpose of God redeeming and purifying a people that would belong to him. And then in Galatians 3.13, that in going to that old rugged cross, that he took upon himself the curse that was due because of the utter brokenness of the law. Yeah, one writer referred to that moment at Sinai as the broken pieces of the law laying around in debris, and human beings are tripping over the broken pieces of the law everywhere, and tripping and falling and smashing. And this is, the, this is a, a pretty simple and, and yet uh, vivid way to say that all of us live among the broken p- pieces of our inability to be righteous. And that Galatians chapter 3 opens up this truth in a very dynamic way that the righteousness of God comes in the bloody sacrificial offering of his son. What does the text say in verse 13? Read it aloud with me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. No one could have done that except Jesus. No human being is ever thought of as having lived before and himself described as coming into the world. He entered the world to fulfill that mission, and he knew it. And this is why I think if we think about New Covenant as a, as a, as a way to ref- reflect on the difference we experience as children of God in our day. Think of what it means for you to know that you don't belong to that old man, that that old nature is still part of you, and yet in Christ, the sacrificial offering of the Son of God has made it possible for the transfer to take place. So at the heart of the good news of Jesus, this good news that Jesus sends to us and through us, is the fulfilled covenant requirement of the shedding of blood. Oh, it's true. We don't like to hear it. It's unpleasant to our ears. And yet, the truth of the blood atonement is what distinguished this covenant-keeping purpose of God through history. Just to dip back into the origin of it, we know that when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 17, he said, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. I will establish my covenant. Remember that one aspect of this cutting of the covenant that God spoke of is that it had to be initiated by God. Maybe the most vivid portrayal of that in a simple way is the scene in the Garden of Eden in Galatians in Genesis 3, 15, when after the fall, when Adam and Eve were now alienated from the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3, in Genesis 3, 21, that the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed their nakedness with the results of the blood sacrifice of an innocent, vicarious victim. And the clothing of Adam and Eve in coats of skins through the shedding of blood sets this marker in place. Why? Why such a, why such an, what is to human mind something that we, we step back from? We, we, uh, 
human religious aspirations have always tried to pretty up the cross and, and, and uh, make it look like uh, uh, you know, a, a gold object of veneration. But why is the reality of the cross so brutally sacrificial? It is because, simply, the wages of sin is death. And you and I do not accurately perceive how deeply sin has poisoned our humanity. We can't even fully grasp it until it became clear by God's model, God's prototype of the paschal lamb and the sprinkling of the blood on the doorpost of every heart. Until it became clear that that the necessity of you and I to have a substitute, to have someone to stand in our place, was of such high importance that one of the most awesome stories of the Old Testament revolves around God telling Abraham in Genesis 22 to take his only son, his beloved son, the promised son, and walk with him with a fire pit of supplies to start a fire and a great knife to the slaying of the sacrifice and to walk from early in the morning, Genesis 22 says, all the way to Mount Moriah and to ascend to Mount Moriah to prepare an altar upon which he will place his only son. And in the ultimate test of Abraham's faith, a test that Hebrews 11 says, Abraham passed because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. A requirement that would leave all of us terrified and horrified. Abraham passes the test. Because in the moment as as that knife begins to come down over the body of his beloved promised son in obedience to what Almighty El Shaddai had told him to do. The angel speaks out of the out of the brush and says, "Abraham, Abraham, stop the knife." Now I know that you would not withhold your only son. Open your Bible to Romans chapter eight and look with me at verse thirty and thirty-one. I want to ask you to think about this in light of this truth, because when we think of the cutting of the covenant, we've got to grasp that this blood covenant truth, this shedding of the sacrificial atoning blood is woven into the very fabric of the new covenant that sets you free. It's the new covenant that enables you to know you can go before your heavenly father realizing that he has removed every barrier between you and him through this sacrificial offering. Look at Romans 8, verse 30 and 31. Would you find it in your own Bible? Because here in verse 32, when we get to that part, God's word refers back to exactly what Abraham had to do until the very moment that the voice of God stopped him from bringing down the knife. Look at Romans 8, verse chapter 8, verse 30. It tells us, Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Verse 31, look at it in your Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, clearly, Abraham's son could not have been the atoning sacrifice because he was a sinner too. Amen? God was using a dramatic, a bluntly dramatic illustration for it to always be seen the sacrifice that would be needed for the blood to be poured out, the blood shed as a life poured out to redeem you and me. Now, the reason for this is so interesting in the Old Testament. When the, when, when the word covenant means a, a compact made by passing between pieces of flesh, the picture there is of the dividing of the, uh, of the pieces of this bloody sacrifice. And the two partners of a mutual covenant would meet in between the pieces of the sacrifice. But when it came to Abraham, God did it differently. He had Abraham make the sacrifice, but then Abraham was put into a deep sleep. And in that deep sleep, he saw the vision of a fire pot and a knife coming in between the pieces, and he heard the voice of the Lord God saying, I am entering into covenant with you. Now, what does that signify? It signifies that only God, only God himself, could not only call this covenant into existence, but only God could provide the sacrifice. And this is why in, uh, in the book of Leviticus, the Bible gives us this picture of why the shedding of blood is such a vivid picture for us. It's a classic thing to remember that God said in Le Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul. Now, we want a happy little religion that just says, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to turn over a, good, a, a new leaf. I'm going to be more righteous. I'm going to try to be more of a loving neighbor. I'm going to recycle. Uh, you know, I'm going to eat vegan or whatever, whatever our thing is. And we create these little, uh, these, these little way, way, way down here in the valley, we create these little notches of, of what we perceive as improving human virtue. And we miss that vast gap we saw, the chasm we saw at Sinai where no human effort, no human endeavor could ever, ever achieve even one iota of righteousness. No, God says, on, from Sinai to Golgotha, God says the righteousness that sinful human hearts need can only come, will only come, through the bloody sacrificial offering of the eternal God-man who entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary having existed eternally as God, but in the womb of the Virgin Mary became the God-man, and that in his redemptive mission, he himself said, the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve, and to give my life as this bloody sacrifice. Now, God said in Leviticus, I've given the blood to make an atonement for you. Zip back quickly in these last few minutes to Romans 3.25, and notice this is exactly what is stated in the text of Romans 3.25, where we read about the freedom of our uh, redemption, being, re being redeemed freely, he tells us in Romans 3 that God set Jesus forth to be the propitiation, bloody sacrifice, atoning sacrifice through faith, in his blood. There is no 
There is no basis, friends, for self-atonement. We hear it in the press many times. Someone is trying to atone for their past. I, I got news for you. You might as well quit right now. You'll never atone for what you did three months ago. You'll never atone for what you did yesterday because you don't have atoning power in your blood. The only atoning blood that is effective for delivering us is this blood. Here's what Romans 3.25 says. Read it aloud with me. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. It's actually a type of what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. When we come to Palm Sunday and we think about Christ coming into Jerusalem and he comes on the donkey and the children are screaming and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Hosanna, save us! They echo many portions of Psalm 118 that this is the head of the corner. This is the one the builders rejected, but God says, I'm making him the head of the corner. He says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And that 118th Psalm ends exactly where Romans 3.25 leaves us, and that is with the offering, the public portrayal, the public presenting of the sacrifice. Psalm 118 verse 27 says, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. The Lord is light and made his light to shine upon us. So bring us that sacrificial victim. So what do we get from this when we realize this on Palm Sunday is what God is doing? The scribes and Pharisees can't perceive it. The children don't understand it, but boy, are they rejoicing. And and when the Pharisees are grumbling about the kids crying out in the marketplace, Jesus says, if we would shut their mouths, if we would try to muzzle them, if we would try to mask them, ooh, that's another story, even the stones would cry out. All of nature would be erupting with its praise for the coming king, who is, though, not only the king on the donkey, he is also the festal sacrifice that is about to be bound with corns, with, with cords. Now, in summary, there are three ways to see the atoning blood of Christ. I hope you could not miss today as we leave, uh, very quickly try to wrap this up, but I hope you could not miss that there are false views of the atonement we need to set aside. One of those is the idea that somehow we can atone for our sins. I've touched on that, but it's so deeply embedded in human, human nature, we try to do that unconsciously at times. That's what Galatians, that's why he said, you foolish Galatians, you can't, you can't create your own righteousness. You can't undo your iniquities. You can't unravel your sinfulness. You can't detox your soul. There's one redemptive answer for the poison in your spirit. It's the cleansing blood of Jesus. It's the blood that sets the captives free. Another false view of atonement, very quickly, I should touch on is one that came out of the unity movement, the mind over matter, um, the uh, various parts of what is called new age, broadly speaking. And that was the idea of they took the English word atonement 
and in false cults, they put, they put it together and they called it at one meant, taking an English word, meaning it's a meaningless thing, because the, uh, the, the Greek term is the word mercy seat for God's provision of the atonement in the tabernacle. But cults took it and made it at one meant, meaning if you're at one with the universe and at one with nature and at one with yourself, that somehow you've achieved spiritual nirvana. That's a lie. That's a counterfeit. The real atonement could only happen through the eternal only begotten Son of God becoming the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And there are three things to take away about the atonement. And don't miss it because you could wrap up a lot of the New Testament in these three summaries. Come on in. It's just fine. Have a seat. So the three is this. One died for all. Would you say it with me? One died for all. That's 2 Corinthians 5.14, if you want the text. The, we thus judge that Christ died for us, then one died for all, that all who live might not live to themselves, but to him who died and rose for them. So one died for all, the atoning death of Jesus. The second thing to take away is that it is once for all. Would you say it with me? Once for all. In his dying words on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, the bloody atoning sacrifice had accomplished all that ever needed to be done. So Hebrews 9.14 tells us now, because of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in you will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What did the believers at Liberty Church in Carroll County on April 3rd, 2022, what do these believers need to know to be free and boldly coming into the presence of our Heavenly Father? We only need to know that Jesus paid it all. All, for he, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. And then the final is Hebrews 9, 15. And that is one mediator for all. Say these three keys aloud with me one more time. One died for all, once for all, meaning it's finished, and then one mediator for all. The 15th verse of that same chapter says, so now in the new covenant, we have this mediator. For there is one God and one Savior, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I want to ask as we pray that you might just receive this one simple. I've given you some pretty heavy-duty stuff today. So I want to ask you to pause and think about for a minute just before you go to realize that in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, you are given, you are given the, the assurance of God's love, and you're given the certainty that whatever has troubled your soul about yourself or your circumstances, that when you bring your heart's need the cry of your heart, the anguish of the remorse, the aspirations and the hopes of the future, and you, and you bring it to the feet of Jesus. You're bringing it to the one whose crucified power still prevails as mightily as it did the morning of his resurrection glory. We worship the crucified one, victorious, risen, glorious, who says, now, now you can be free, you can stay free, you can grow free because the blood has prevailed.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.